Well, it's four years now since the UK left the European Union and more than four years since that famous Boris Johnson slogan being elected on the platform of getting Brexit done. Well, Brexit's been done. It's been done for four years. It's nearly eight years since we had the referendum. So what have we learned? Is Brexit firmly behind us? Are we in a current sort of state of equilibrium? What is the state of UK-EU relations now? How might they develop in the future? Well, these are among the questions we're going to try and address today, or at least I hope my colleagues are going to try and address. I'm Paul Johnson. I'm Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK Interchanging Europe. And this is The Expert Factor. So, where are we? And, and let's start with you. Brexit happened four years ago. We left the European Union officially. Is everything now tied up? Have we got all the details sorted? Uh, no. And I think increasingly it's becoming clear that Brexit is as much a process as it was an event for several reasons, I think. Firstly, because we're still implementing the deal we signed. You know, there's an ongoing process of getting the trade and cooperation agreement and indeed the withdrawal agreement because there are still a lot of loose ends over citizens' rights that are being tied up, some of them in court. Uh, all that stuff needs to be properly implemented. Secondly, because there are add-ons. So we had the Windsor Framework signed in February last year. That is still being implemented in phases. And of course, in the context of Northern Ireland, each phase brings with it specific dangers of a unionist backlash, depending on the practical impact of the new measures. Third, because we have an opposition party that is talking about renegotiating bits of our deal. So it might be that even if we've finished implementing the TCA, the Labour Party come into power and say, hang on a sec, we want to try and fiddle with this at least around the edges to get a slightly less friction into our trading relationship. And the final point, I think we underestimate this, is if you are a country that neighbours a continental-sized economy you are going to spend an awful lot of your time thinking and talking about it. If you're Canada, whether you like it or not, quite a lot of your time is taken over worrying what the United States is doing. If you're an Asian country, you spend a lot of time thinking about China. And I think being outside the European Union, we're almost condemned to spend a lot of time thinking about the European Union, because even if we're not negotiating our relationship, what it does, particularly in economic, they're not solely in economic terms, has a massive impact on us. You mentioned the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Just for our listeners, tell us what it is. I'm so glad you didn't say tell us what it says. Uh, the, tra <laughs> the Trade and Cooperation Agreement is the trade agreement that the UK and EU finally finished negotiating on Christmas Eve 2020, which has now come into force and is the document that governs our economic relationship with the European Union. It's hard to sort of sum it up in a sentence, but it's quite a light touch agreement. It is far, far more distant a trading relationship than it was when we were a member state of the European Union and a far more distant trading relationship than countries like, say, Switzerland or Norway have with the European Union. And then the other important agreement is the withdrawal agreement, yep. which is what the Windsor framework is part of. Is that yep. right? Yeah, that's right. So the, the withdrawal agreement settled three things. It settled the money we owe, which we're still paying. It settled the rights of UK citizens in the EU and EU citizens in the UK. And it settled the issue, well, it dealt with the issue of Northern Ireland. And that's why the Windsor framework is an amendment to the withdrawal agreement, not the trade and cooperation agreement. So there are two documents, in a sense, and the trade and cooperation agreement is the trade bit. And that trade bit, I mean, how, how, how well is that now 
working? I mean, do we know <laughs> what the consequences of it have been for trade between the UK and the EU? Is it all even fully implemented yet? It's not all fully implemented yet, no. And there are a number of institutions created under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement whose job it is to make certain bits of it work better, to iron out certain things, to make sure things work smoothly. So in one sense, it's too early to know. In another sense, yes, we are starting to get data. And the data has been surprising, I think. Uh, the data has been surprising because our trade with the European Union, I think, has held up far better than many people predicted pre-referendum. One of the reasons for that, of course, is in politics. It was in the interest of the Remain side to exaggerate and talk about a cliff edge and stuff like that. And of course, we, there was no cliff edge. Uh, there is evidence that there is an impact, but it's slightly more nuanced than people thought. So, for instance, services exports to the European Union have held up pretty well. And this is just a guess, but I think it's an informed guess. One of the reasons for that is paradoxically COVID, that we learned to sell services virtually. So a lot of people... Like us, for instance, if one of us was, was invited to do a lecture in the European Union, we might now think, you know what, well, I'll do it by Zoom. So you comply your trade without going through customs posts, without necessarily having to get a visa and things like that. There's evidence that goods trade has suffered. And some, in, some interesting research from the LSE points to the fact that whilst overall volumes might have held up fairly well, the number of trading relationships between the UK and the EU has decreased quite dramatically. And I think there intuitively you'd think, okay, your big exporters, which can afford to have whole departments to deal with paperwork, with legal issues and stuff, have got around this. But a lot of small traders have just looked at the paperwork and thought it's not worth it anymore. That will become clearer over time. Obviously, the data is very, very messy at the moment because, of course, we've had COVID, we've had Ukraine, and so it'll take time. But there are the first signs that Brexit is having an impact, albeit not as clear-cut as I think a lot of the predictions would have had it. Yeah, and it's interesting what you say about services exports because that was one of the areas where it was always very uncertain what the impact would be. We, we talked; there was a lot of talk about goods, so there's a lot of talk about the impact of putting tariffs on on good exports mm. and, and imports, and actually measuring services out um, at trade and the likely impact of losing agreements over how that works is always terribly uncertain. But also in some ways was the most worrying because for a lot of services you need agreements about yeah. who is qualified to do it who's actually allowed to do it i mean is, is this is this indication that actually there's been quite a liberal interpretation of what's been permitted or, or is it is it an indication just of the strength of uk financial services and so on that that, that they're always going to get over some of these barriers I think the latter and also a uh, reflection of the fact that services have just done remarkably well post-pandemic in terms of services trade. But I think if you look at the number of stories about touring musicians, say, it's quite obvious that member states are imposing the new regulations and that is causing trouble for some sectors. One of the paradoxes about the trade and corporate, well, it's not a paradox, it's a reality of negotiation, I suppose. On paper, at least, the trade and cooperation agreement was a win for the European Union. Because we had a trade surplus in services, they had a surplus in goods. And what the Trade and Cooperation Agreement does is it removes virtually all frictions, though not all, on trading goods, whilst doing very, very little for services. So one of the reasons the European Union is very, very happy with the Trade and Cooperation Agreement is they think, okay, that's a win. We've got what we wanted. Now, in parentheses, I should say, that's been true up to now because we haven't imposed the full panoply of checks on our border for their exports to us that they have for our exports to them. If those ever come in, the situation might change and we might see small exporters. You see lots of stories 
about, you know, Dutch flower exporters saying when these checks in, it's going to be impossible for us to export to the United Kingdom. But we don't know yet because those checks aren't in place. And they're not in place because we just haven't got our act together or because we don't want to put them in place? Well, partly because we haven't got our act together, partly fascinatingly, because the last time they were delayed, which was the tail end of last year, the Chancellor said, we're worried about the inflationary impact this might have, which in the context of the Brexit debate is quite an interesting thing to hear a Conservative Chancellor saying. Yeah, yeah. And Hannah, what about the politics of all of this? I mean, it, it is remarkable in a way, isn't it? I mean, there was a period, a long period, when you never heard anything else on the news apart from the negotiations. Good about, old days, Paul. We call the good old days. Yes, office. or you might. <laughs> the days the rest of us would rather forget. Um, uh, and yet, you know, over the last, I mean, since the Windsor uh, Agreement, and runs a framework, it's not really much in the news. I mean, the politicians almost seem to be conspiring not to talk about Brexit at the moment, despite the fact that you know, for, for in, in all sorts of dimensions, this is one of the biggest processes, as Anne put it, that, we've, that we're going through. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's not just not talking about it. It's, you know, when you look at what's gone on in Parliament, there's been very little scrutiny by MPs of what's happened since we left. And there's just, you know, there was little appetite, actually, to be fair, before 2016 among MPs to ever talk about the EU. But they've reverted <laughs> to that form. Uh, they've been inoculated against any wish to talk about the EU by the whole Brexit process, I think. I think what they've clocked is that the British public really had enough of listening to the likes of us on the airwaves and, and politicians banging on endlessly Surely about not. Brexit. Um, that people really want to think, well, that's done and they don't want to, to think about it and that they have other pressing concerns and that if they talk about Brexit and put that front and centre, there's just a lot of risk. There's risk for different parties in different ways. For the Conservatives, that there's a whole set of people who voted for them in 2019 who tend to think that you know, Brexit hasn't been fully implemented in the way that they would like to see it implemented. And I'm looking slightly nervously at Anand here because I know that UK Change Europe have done some really interesting public research on this. So I'm hoping it's going to tell me if I'm if this is wrong. But on the Labour side, you know, what they want to do is win back some of those voters who were pro-Brexit but voted for the Conservatives in 2019. So the last thing they want to do is give any impression that they want to reverse Brexit. They have talked about ways in which they want to improve the functioning of the TCA. You were talking about agreements over professional qualifications and things like that that they want to get in place, maybe a veterinary agreement. But these are sort of not easy to negotiate, as I'm sure we'll come on to type things, but they are nothing close to saying, actually, we are in any way rethinking Brexit. And that's the danger that they want to avoid. The Conservatives being able to say, well, actually, Labour uh, aren't behind this project at all. So the solution, I think, has been, let's not talk about it at all. I mean, the massive paradox here is that both parties seem to be obsessed with growth. Every time we have a fiscal event, the OBR produces a report saying this is costing 4% and no one will talk about it, which is curious to say the least. <laughs> Hannah, I understand the politics of, of, of what you're saying, but what worried me most about what you just said was your statement that this is not really being scrutinised even in Parliament. That's right. We did a, a report last year which which looked at the main committee in the House of Commons, the European Scrutiny Committee, which is supposed to look at what's going on. And we found at the time that the Labour MPs who were on it weren't even turning up, <laughs> um, that some had become front benches and not been replaced, and that it had turned very much into a forum in which people who were very pro-Brexit urged the government to go, to go faster in terms of deregulating and so on. And so it wasn't what you would think of as a traditional cross-party balanced analysis of the situation. Well, often shocked. 
well, that's a dereliction of duty, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's what we argued at the time. And uh, happily, the, there was some movement after we published our report, which I think we chalked up as, as impact to put some people on the committee who actually wanted to attend. But that's, that's precisely right. And of course, at the same time, the House of Lords, which while we were members of the EU, did a lot of Brexit scrutiny, had 70 peers at any one time engaged in a complex committee system with subcommittees, all looking at different aspects of our relationship with the EU. They dismantled that post-Brexit and they've replaced it with a different set of committees. They still have an EU committee, but it's much less of a big project because we haven't got that flow of papers coming from the EU, which, by the way, were quite useful in helping government here understand what was going on in the EU and which we're now seeking to have to, to, to replicate in order to understand if we are or are not going to diverge from what the EU is doing. We need to know what's going on there, but we've got much less parliamentary capacity devoted to knowing that, and it's also a big challenge for the civil service. And how risky is all of that? I mean, in the end, I mean, the, the details of a lot of these agreements and, and, and policies and regulations and how much we are or aren't diverging from the EU really matters. It feels like we're sort of blundering slightly here and, and taking some, some, some big risks because we don't, as you say, we don't quite know what we're doing, I think is what I kind of took from what well, you I mean, just said. <laughs> I, mean, I may be being overly high level, but I mean, there were other apparatuses put in place around the TCA. So there's a, there's a sort of parliamentary joint committee which meets with uh, members of the EU parliament and members of the UK parliament to monitor what's going on. But that's really much more high level. I mean, I think the reality is and again, Anne will know this in much more detail than me, it's it's the companies who are having to keep across it. It's the companies who, if they want to be selling their goods into the EU and their services into the EU, have to know what the current regulations are. And if they don't want to be meeting two different sets of standards, if the EU has, has tightened things, they have to be meeting that standard, even if it's not required of them in the UK. So it might not be, it's not the government leading on understanding how the EU is changing in lots of cases. It's, it's industry having to, to keep up for themselves. This whole question of divergence is so fundamental to the Brexit story. I mean, we're, we're all old enough to remember the Maastricht rebels and Euroscepticism in the 90s and 2000s, the Fresh Start group. That was essentially all about deregulation. It was about the working time directive and how we need to get rid of it because it's over-regulation from the European Union that is tying the hands of our economic policymakers. That was the conservative mantra pre-referendum, if you like. Now, other strands were added during the referendum, but there were still a number of conservatives who thought that the point of Brexit was to deregulate, was to strip those EU regulations off the statute books. Now, it looks like the government has rode back from that. To the extent that we're deregulating, we're legalising the sale of pints of wine. We're not uh, ripping up... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. We're not, we're not <laughs> ripping up the statute books. We're not scrapping employment or environmental legislation. We're keeping it. And, you know, whilst obvious for obvious political reasons, the Prime Minister is not going to stand up and make a speech about why he's doing that. That seems to be the case. So we've decided not to diverge because of getting rid of EU regulation. But the second bit of that, as Hannah was saying, is if we want to make life easy for companies, if we don't want companies having to deal with two separate sets of rules, we have to know what the EU is doing. And each time it does something, we've got to make a decision about whether we should mirror that or not. Now, there's two levels to that. One is simply saying, the EU's done that, let's do something quite similar. That spares companies the added hassle of complying with two sets of rules, it doesn't get us easy access into the European market. 
Okay, a lot of people say if we align with EU rules, we get access. It's not true. You have to align with EU rules. You have to accept the authority of the Court of Justice. You have to sign an agreement that says you will automatically change your rules as a matter of course when they do. And that's something both political, both major political parties have ruled out on sovereignty reasons. But I suspect going forward that this question of divergence is going to become much, much bigger because there'll be a big business pressure for clarity, for knowing whether we're diverging or not, and for being able to react to what the EU does. And the Conservatives in opposition, I suspect, are going to start talking again, as they used to talk, about the need for dramatic action to deregulate the UK economy. Because the one thing a lot of Conservative members of Parliament have made clear is they're very, very good at the performative part of this. But when it comes to actually doing it, so we had the retained EU law bill, for instance, and lots of MPs were out there shouting about how fantastic this will be when push came to shove, no one quite wanted to be responsible for implementing something that businesses had said would be massively disruptive to them. So I think in opposition, it'll be quite easy for the Conservatives to try and make hay on this. Mm. But they've not actually managed to identify much where they actually want to genuinely deregulate because there's always somebody who wants the regulation and a lot of them have good reasons. Just, just kind of coming back to this, uh, the economy piece. I mean, you said two things earlier on, and one that looking at trade doesn't look like we've had the significant negative effect you might have expected. But secondly, that everyone still agrees that it looks like about a four percent hit to the UK economy. Is that second thing really still solid, or, or, or is that is that consensus beginning to crumble a bit in the face of the trade data? What the OBR is saying is, over the medium term, based on the studies that they've looked at, and they basically don't do their own research; they look at the research that's being done over ten to fifteen years. That's the scale of the impact we can expect now. If you're asking for the number, there is a very big fight going on between economists about this that ranges from John Springford of the Centre of European, European Reform, who reckons there's been a 5-6% impact on the UK economy already, to others who say that sounds awfully high and we don't believe it's on that scale yet. But of course, it will keep growing because it will happen over time. And of course, more checks are going to come in. I think 4% is ballpark average. Of in, what in the long run, not, not already, not but, already, but in, no, not already. In, in, in the medium run. Whereas the John yeah. Springford is already, yeah. he uses this doppelganger. I don't want to get too much into it, but basically he argues that had we stayed in, our economy would be about 5% bigger than it is now. Yeah, which sound, which would mean it would have grown quite a lot faster than all the other European economies, yeah. I think, over the period since yeah. 2016. I don't think there's much doubt that there was a Brexit effect before Brexit. Yes. That is to say that companies would have planned. Yeah. You definitely can see a collapse in private investment. investment. Yeah. You, you can definitely see that, and there's no getting around that. I mean, in terms of the sort of conversation we've been having, we've been focusing on the failure of the government to really deregulate and, and, and change things. I mean, what would the proponents of Brexit point to as the positive benefits beyond being able to buy pints of champagne? Well, there are different proponents of Brexit. There are some for whom simply the fact of not being bound by EU law is enough. This isn't about ploughing our own economic furrow. It isn't about massive divergence. It's simply about having the right to make our own decisions, the real sovereigntists. There are others who would say, actually, I'm a great fan of our new immigration system because this was never about numbers. This was about us choosing who we get and where they come from. And that we've definitely got that now. We have an immigration system. We, we, we have control. Yeah, we have control, even though as you listen to the debates in Parliament about 
immigration. You'd be surprised to hear it in a way because government seems to imply that this is happening for reasons outside their control. The reason we have 700,000 plus people coming here is because government has given them the visas. To we do deci- so. We've decided. Yeah, we've decided do. they yeah, should come here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things in public opinion is whilst I think some 80% of Leave voters now say Brexit is going badly, 60 or 70% of them think it will eventually work out well. So amongst many Brexiters, there is a sense that We've had a rubbish government. They failed to do Brexit properly, but those potentials are still there to do things in the future. Do they agree on, coming back to the point Hannah was making earlier, that there's a sort of sense among a lot of pro-Brexit voters that it hasn't been done properly? Do they, is there any agreement on what doing it properly would mean? I mean, do, do we know what people would want from it to make it look proper? No, not really. I mean, you know, the, the clues were there right from the start with the two parallel Leave campaigns saying slightly different, if not contradictory things. What they did was they built a campaign to get as many people voting Leave as possible. That didn't involve necessarily having a coherent plan for the specific measures that should have been taken afterwards. And actually, one of the things you see in the state of our politics now, if you see you see the coalition that Boris Johnson put together, which was essentially a coalition of Leave supporters. Okay, I think 75% of Leave supporters backed the Tories. In, 20, in December 2019, what you find there is they might be able to agree on Brexit. They might be able to agree on immigration. But you give that disparate coalition and a series of economic choices and they will fight like cats and dogs because their economic interests are fundamentally incompatible. So Boris Johnson created a coalition that was very good at talking about values stuff like Brexit, but awful about talking about economics. So in a sense, it was always going to prove very, very fragile because economics tends to always reassert itself as one of the major issues in our politics. I mean, do you think that's why the current government has put such emphasis on immigration, which we talked about a couple of Absolutely. weeks ago, and almost conflating legal and illegal immigration and, and trying to talk about what they can do on, on that front, because that's a sort of proxy to be able to talk to leave voters without having to address head-on the economic questions that they might diverge on. Absolutely. I remember a couple of weeks ago, there was an MRP poll in the Telegraph about which there was all that fuss about whether they'd misinterpreted it or not. And there was a piece by James Johnson, the pollster, that basically showed that it's it's Leave voters deserting the Conservative Party in droves. And he was arguing the way to get those Leave voters back is to talk about immigration and be tougher on immigration. So yeah, there's a very good reason why stopping the boats was one of those pledges that Sunak made. Election year. Sounds what we're all saying that despite the fact this is the biggest thing that's happened to the UK in decades and despite the fact this is a process that's ongoing, we're not going to hear anything about Brexit. Is that a fair expectation? I mean, I think there's been a little bit more from Labour. Some of the things they plan to do, some of the specifics, but it's certainly not going to be front and centre of their campaign. And I think we've also seen, interestingly, that it's not going to be put front and centre by the Liberal Democrats, who have had their fingers burnt by going there in the past. So they, in some world, could have been the party who were actively campaigning for rejoin at this point. But that doesn't look like it's it's going to be happening. I think... That remains their official policy. It's just a policy they won't talk about. It's interesting. I mean, John Curtis said at the time of the party conferences last year, he thought the Lib Dems should be talking more about Europe. Yeah. Uh, but, but you're absolutely, I mean, the one party that is going to talk about Europe is the SNP. Yeah. And one of the reasons they won't, I mean, you know, Hannah's touched on why both the Tories and Labour are hesitant. But whilst it is absolutely the case that public opinion on Brexit has shifted, it is also equally the case that the public don't care. So I think in terms of that 
Ipsos salience tracker, you know, the number of people who say each is two is the most important. I think Brexit's down to six or seven percent. And back in what I call the good old days, if you think back to 2019, that figure was 73. You've got a very funny idea of the good old days, man. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> and I suppose part of the answer, part of the reason for that is for most of us, most of the time, it's not obvious that it's making any difference. I mean, if you get stuck in a queue once a year when you're going on holiday, I mean, that might annoy you. But actually, if this has had an effect on the economy, you can't really see. I disagree slightly with that. Okay. I mean, I think there's been an interesting turnaround. So I think when we first left... COVID hit quite quickly afterwards. And so Boris Johnson was able to argue there is no Brexit effect. This is all down to the pandemic. Brexit's having no effect on our economy whatsoever. And in general, the public believed it. Okay, this was all about COVID. Coming out of the pandemic and into the cost of living crisis, I think mm. the opposite has occurred. I think quite- People are blaming- I think people are blaming Brexit not- for far more than okay. it's actually responsible for. Right, right, uh, right. They sort of put two and two together and come to five. You know, we've done Brexit. Everything's really expensive. Therefore, so I think in a sense, I mean, one of the interesting questions, those people who say public opinion is changing the right, but I do wonder whether if the economy does start to grow, if we do see a recovery, if we do start feeling better about ourselves, whether people will start to say, well, that's Brexit working. For the same spurious reason as they mm. think the cost of living crisis mm. is Brexit not working. Mm. I guess the the clever strategy in a way from the obvious strategy from the government has been to lance the boils of the bits that people were really talking about. So that's why Rishi Sunak, one of his first focuses was on sorting out the Northern Ireland situation and, and getting that Windsor framework agreed. And more recently, we've seen the Horizon Agreement, and and that was something where you know there was a, a degree to, to which there were scientists continuing to talk about how their inability to enter into joint pieces of of research with their European colleagues and and win large amounts of money, which the UK had always been very good at via Horizon, that was something which you know was being talked about, and the government has addressed that. So I think. Those things which were keeping Brexit slightly more in the news are the things that uh, Although even those were dealt yeah, with. in a direct sense only affecting a small number of people. I mean, Northern Ireland is very small. There aren't that many scientists, but both were able to make a fair bit of noise. Can I just add something? I, mean, I think there are two external things that, that go in the same way. I think the war in Ukraine has changed the salience of Europe and the EU, which is one of the reasons why Labour feels a bit more free to talk about we're going to have a security treaty with the European Union because there's a European war going on. And who knows what impact Trump might have? I mean, if Trump comes in and, you know, a few days into power says something that undermines NATO, and all it takes is the word of American president, all it takes is an American president to say, we will not honour our obligations under Article 5, and NATO is dead. Uh, that too might have an impact on how a future government thinks about or interacts with Europe, I think. So I wanted to come on to that question of how being outside of the EU has or hasn't impacted on our role on the world stage. We're no longer part of that block. We're obviously still part of uh, of NATO. Has that changed how we've responded to Ukraine? Has that changed how we responded to what's happening in, in Gaza? Would we have done the same with the Houthis in terms of joining the Americans in bombing them, irrespective of whether we're in the EU? Has it given us a bigger, more independent voice? Or as, as a lot of the Remainers would have said, has it taken us away from the centre stage because we're not part of the European bloc? Okay, there's several bits. I mean, obviously, obviously, Brexit hasn't changed our fundamental national interests, which are a function as much of geography as anything else, and that hasn't changed. So I think with the Houthis, we'd have done exactly what we did, Brexit or not. I think Brexit has made a difference to our foreign policy. I think 
Because there were so many people expressing doubts that Brexit was us turning our backs on the world, governments post-Brexit went out of their way to be hyperactive in foreign policy. Uh, obviously, we've had to do trade deals, which we didn't do before, but they've been really played up by government. We've had Global Britain slogan. We've had the Indo-Pacific tilt. We've had the AUKUS deal with Australia. From a period following the unsuccessful vote for military strikes in Syria up to 2016, where our foreign policy basically disappeared, we've been a lot more active. And I'm convinced we've been more active because of Brexit. We've been active because governments had to show that Brexit worked. And one of the way it worked was it made us present on the world stage. The flip side, of course, is if you take the OBR predictions and the economic analyses seriously, is it's constrained us because there's slightly less cash to go around. And we're slightly less cash at a time when our armed forces have been stripped to the bone, at a time when we're cutting back on development aid spending. Uh, we're able to spend less on foreign policy. So, we might be putting more energy into it. It might be more politically salient for the government to show we're doing stuff, but there are fewer resources, so it's mixed. How much, if anything, will change after the election? You know, we know that Labour Party members were very, very pro-Remain. I presume that virtually all of their MPs will be very, very pro-Remain. Is there going to be more pressure on Keir Starmer to do more to uh, bring about closer relations post-election, or of the members of the party of the um, of, of the MPs followed the rest of the population, just got bored and think, well, let's just carry on and ignore it. I think there's a couple of angles on this. I mean, I think you're right that those are two important constituencies. I also think there's a lot, awful lot of people who are Labour voters, who voted Labour before and will vote Labour this time around, who are Remain supporters. They might not be members of the party, but they will, if they're honest, be expecting to see something change in terms of the UK's relationship with the EU as the sort of payoff for having got a Labour government, if that's what happens. So I think the pressure on Keir Starmer to do something will increase. At the same time, though, he's got very many domestic priorities. And although, as we've said, improving the trading relationship with the EU could, you know, well, if we re-entered the single market and the customs union, you know, maybe that would have, a, as we've said, a 4% improvement over 15 years. You know, Labour Party absolutely hasn't said it would do that, but there could be big economic payoffs to improving the relationship. But the things that they have said they're going to do would have much smaller effects. And it won't be easy. You know, the sorts of things they're saying they want to do, you have to look at the incentives mm. on the EU to do them. Right. What is yes. it that the EU <laughs> will be getting in return? They're pretty happy, as Anand has said, with the TCA. And even with the will on the EU side, these sorts of renegotiations are, are lengthy processes which take a lot of political time. And a new Labour government will have a lot of other things it wants to focus a lot of political attention on. So an election in this country... New Labour government, potentially. Election in the United States. We've talked about the potential impact of President Trump. Elections in the European Union, of course, um, about which, despite what you said earlier, Anand, that, uh, you know, you kind of see this great beast of a continental size economy next to us. I've heard almost nothing about the EU elections relative to the amount we hear about the US. Is that because they'll make no difference? I mean, that's part of the course. They will make a difference because actually, in many ways, the European Parliament is a parliament like the House of Representatives in the United States. It's a parliament where you get shifting coalitions sometimes and where ultimately the vote of parliament determines legislation in a very profound way and where the executive doesn't control parliament. So it matters a lot. I think there are a lot of issues where it matters, but just to take one, I think 
the EU's green policies will be fundamentally affected by this because the centre-right and, of course, the parties further to the right have been expressing real scepticism about the European Union's green ambitions. So, yeah, they will have an effect, but they'll have an effect via legislation. They won't have an effect in terms of necessarily shifting. A lot of EU foreign policy is basically decided between national capitals anyway, so it won't necessarily shift the big parameters of geopolitical thinking, but it'll have an enormous effect on legislation going forward. And as we were talking about earlier when we were talking about scrutiny, what the EU does legislatively really impacts on us, even though it is nowhere near as sexy as the Iowa caucus, according to our media. Which is astonishing, really. Well, it's not astonishing, but it doesn't seem quite right somehow. Um, which direction is the parliament likely to shift in after the election? Rightwards, leftwards? At the moment, people think that the far right is going to do rather well. I mean, there are lots of unknowns about this. One of which, of course, is how many migrants are crossing the Mediterranean, which will hinge on the weather. I mean, on small things like this. So the weather might determine the outcome. Well, I mean, the weather will be important. Yeah, absolutely. As it will be for our politics, in a sense, because it will have a bearing on how many people cross the channel. But at the moment, people are fearing that the far right does rather well in the European Parliament elections, not to the point of taking it over, but to the point of having a say in some of the decisions if the centre-right is dependent on some of those right-wing parties to hold a majority together. And the impact on us, if that's the case? Uh, it kind of depends. I mean, it will have an impact on the choices we make because the legislative direction of the European Union will change. I mean, the real game-changer in terms of relations with us will be if one of those far-right parties comes to power in a member state. So, I mean, the key election there is probably the French one, where Marine Le Pen looks very, very well-placed at the moment, though I would say Marine Le Pen always looks very well-placed two or three years out. And the way the system works, you know, essentially, as long as she is in the second round with someone broadly centrist, chances are she will lose because mm. people will get behind the other candidate, even if they're sort of holding their nose while they do so. It's always struck me that the real danger of the French political system is if you get the extreme left and yeah. the extreme well, she right. didn't come too far away a while Macron's ago. first time, it was very close. Pen, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That would be a game changer, I think, more profound. So before we finally wind up, I'll ask each of you for sort of a, a prediction of the, of the big things that might happen over the next couple of years in terms of our relationship with the EU. Is, is, is Brexit just going to trundle on pretty much as, as it is at the moment, probably not going to impact on our daily lives in any particular way? Or is this going to be, are, are we going to see any significant noticeable changes either in our politics or in our relationships with the EU or in the way that it impacts on us? I mean, I think the main thing we'll see if, at our general election, we get a Labour government, we'll see a change in tone. So we'll see a change in tone in our politics and the way that the EU is talked about. And the Labour Party will be pinning its hopes on the fact that a change in tone can also deliver more substantive benefits in terms of some of the renegotiations they want to do. They may be being a bit hopeful about that because the EU doesn't really deal in, in sentiment. It deals in cold hard facts and what's of benefit to the EU. I but thought I we were the empiricists. <laughs> but I do think that we'll uh, change, Paul. the way in which uh, the EU is talked about in the UK will change. I mean, just building on that, I think Keir Starmer will do far less than some people seem to expect in terms of changing relations with the EU. And I think relations with the EU might well become a real issue of dissent within the Labour Party going forward. Well, you heard it here first. Sounded to me happens. like the answer is that not a lot will change. We seem to just be in a new world. We've accepted 
Brexit, it's going to have a, a, a small negative effect on the economy. It's given us control over our immigration and, and, and additional sovereignty. But the world, for most of us, most of the time hasn't changed, perhaps as much as some people suggested that it might have done. And, and Anand is now uh, looking back very fondly to those years <laughs> that the rest of us are trying to forget when no one spoke about anything else. But I'm quite happy about the fact, I have to say, that we might not spend uh, the next five years spending too much time worrying about the details of this, even if Anand and the UK and a changing Europe uh, will continue to bang on, <laughs> to bang on about Europe, to coin a phrase. Well, that's it from us for today. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Expert Factor, and we will see you next time. Remember, you can find us at Acast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Do subscribe and please do leave us a review. We like to know that you haven't had anywhere near enough of experts. We'll be back next week for another deep dive. So please do join us and do get in touch to suggest the type of topics you'd like us to explore. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you for the next instalment of The Expert Factor.